This week, someone uh, shared a quote with me, and it went like this, patience is a virtue, but you must come by it honestly. Uh, patience is a virtue, but you must come by it honestly. Uh, the guy who shared that with me is actually Mike May, who's one of our seminary field works, uh, field workers, rather, and uh, you maybe you've seen Mike in service from time to time. Um, he'll be a called to be a pastor here in a few months. Um, but I thought that was a really great quote, very profound. Patience is a virtue, but you have to come by it honestly, which makes me think that Mike stole it from somewhere. Just way too good for a seminarian. Um, in fact, most good quotes that preachers say probably aren't theirs, just as a rule. Um, but you know, I thought that was so true. Patience is a virtue, but you must come by it honestly. There's no cheat method. You know, there's no shortcut. And we hate that, don't we? I mean, isn't there a pill I can take? Isn't there some laser somewhere that can do it for me? We love lasers, don't we? Isn't there some 30-day program? No, there's not. Uh, the only way you can come by patience is through waiting. But, but not just waiting, because we've all seen some people wait well and use waiting for their advantage, and some people wait not so well. I mean, you've been in a waiting room before, haven't you? And there are two kinds of people in a waiting room. There, there are the kinds of people who, who are come prepared. You know, they, they've got magazines to read or books, or they've got a, a laptop, they're going to get some work done, or they're going to keep their hands busy, right? There, there are people who come to a waiting room expecting to wait, and then there are people who come to a waiting room and, and who seem to be surprised by the idea that you should have to wait in a waiting room. Uh, and you can recognize those people. They're usually the people crawl, uh, climbing the walls, right? They're, they're just going out of their skin, so it's not just waiting. Waiting doesn't automatically breed patience. It's, it's how you use the wait in your life. And some people, uh, you know, they, they, they endure weights, and some people leverage weights. They figure out how to get time on their side. Uh, today we're going to talk about a guy by the name of Joseph, and uh, he did this really well. Uh, Joseph, n- not Mary's husband Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, we're We're going to talk about a guy named Joseph who lived about 1,700 years before that other Joseph. And uh, Joseph was was a guy who found himself in a very unlikely waiting room, a room that very few of us have ever found ourselves in, probably. Um, But but, uh, man, just a profound place of waiting. To to see it, I want to show you, uh, it's in Genesis 39, verse 20. It says, Joseph's master took him and put him in prison the place where the king's prisoners were confined. So who is this guy, Joseph? And how did he get here? Well, I'll tell you the story in just a second, but first let's pray. Father God, we ask you to speak to us today. We ask you to help us do this thing that we are all terrible at. Help us learn to wait, to wait well, to leverage time, to trust you in the wait. God, um, I pray today that you'd open up our hearts and our minds to hear from you. Father, I know that you've got a word to speak to every one of us, a word that is very personal, that's very direct, and I ask that you would use me to speak it. I I pray that my words would be your words and that your words would would just fall in the right place in all of our hearts and that they would become fruitful in us. And I pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So uh, today I'm going to tell you the story of this guy, Joseph, and um, it's an exciting story, and I, uh, it's a long story. It actually takes about five chapters of the Bible, uh, so I can't, I can't tell you all of it. I'm going to kind of summarize some stuff. If you know this story, um, you know, I don't want you to get ahead of yourself and check out, um, but man, if you don't know the story, it is an exciting story, a true story with a lot of value for us here today. So it starts back with this large family, the large family of a guy named Jacob, 
who was an important guy. Um, Jacob had 12 sons. One of those sons was Joseph, this guy we're going to talk about today. Jacob also had a number of daughters, um, but he had 12 sons. But Joseph was his favorite son. Joseph was born to his favorite wife, which is a whole other issue that I'm not going to get into today. He was born to his favorite wife, and, uh, and Joseph was so favored by his father. I mean, his father was unashamed in his favoritism. He was so favored by his father that um, his father gave him this richly ornamented robe that he got to wear around. Uh, some of us might know it as a coat of many colors or even a technicolor dream coat. That's the guy, Joseph, that we're talking about. So he wore this robe around. None of his other brothers or even sisters got to wear a robe like this. And after a while, this, this started to get to Joseph, this favored status. He turned out a little spoiled, arrogant, a little cocky. He was also a tattletale, which uh, got him in trouble later. But, but I got to tell you one other thing about Joseph first. Joseph also was a guy who had very vivid, powerful symbolic dreams. And uh, most of the dreams came to the same kind of conclusion, that, that it seemed that the dreams indicated that God was going to use his life for something great, that he would be elevated even over his brothers. Um, and, and Joseph, you know, he had these dreams and he couldn't help that, but Joseph, either because he wasn't too smart or, or more likely because he was a little arrogant, he would have these dreams and he'd wake up the next day and he'd go and he'd tell all of his brothers about these dreams, about him being elevated even over them. So you can imagine the tension this began to build in a family, right? Especially coming after Thanksgiving where a lot of you have just spent time with family. You know about family tension. There, there was this powder keg that was forming because here you've got this guy, Joseph, who's his father's favorite. He's running around in this fancy robe. He's arrogant. He's a tattletale. He's talking about all these dreams that how he's better than his brothers and, and his brothers. They're, they're about to explode and eventually they do. Uh, one day they're all out in the fields working. Their father was a, a, a great wealthy shepherd and so they're taking care of the flocks. And they're all out in the fields working, but Joseph's not. Joseph's in the house with, with dad. And, uh, and the father, Jacob, sends Joseph out to spy on his brothers to make sure that they're doing what they should do. And, and they see Joseph coming. And, and their blood boils because they know why he's coming. And they make a plan right then. They make a plan to capture him and kill him. Uh, but one of the brothers talks sense to them and he says, you know, why should we kill him? Let's sell him instead. And so they hold him there um, in prison until some slave traders come by on the road and, and they sell him to these slave traders. And then they go home and they tell a story to their dad about how Joseph had been killed by a wild animal and, and the father is mourning and he's totally brokenhearted and, and they keep this horrible secret. But meanwhile, Joseph is carried off far away from his homeland, all the way down to the land of Egypt. And there in Egypt, he's sold into slavery to a man named Potiphar, who is a high official for the king of Egypt, the pharaoh of Egypt. Now, now if you know this story, I just want to caution you right now. There's this thing called the curse of knowledge. And uh, if you know this story, you, you're going to suffer today from the curse of knowledge because you know where this story goes and you're already running ahead in your mind. You're already running ahead to the happy ending. And what that will do is that will, that will cause you to miss the important learnings that, that God wants to teach you through uh, the story of Joseph. So don't run ahead in your mind. And in fact, right now I want you to pause for a second and just think about how tragic this is. Um, here, here you take this, this young guy who's lived in his house, you know, very cush, pampered existence, uh, spoiled really through no fault of his own. 
And, uh, and he's suddenly carried off by these strange slave traders who probably didn't, didn't treat him very kindly. And he's carried off to a foreign land where he had never been, to a strange people in Egypt, and he's sold, not, not to be a favored son, I mean he's sold to be a servant. Can you just think for a second about how tragic, how hard, how scary that must have been for Joseph? But interestingly enough, even though he, he should have been this you know, delicate flower who would have wilted, Joseph actually does pretty well. He starts off doing all the small slave stuff, and then he eventually works his way up, and he becomes the, the chief servant in all of his master's house. So, so Joseph goes from being just a, you know, a, a grunt slave to being the, the slave who's in charge of all the other servants, and things go pretty well for him. And, uh, and just when he thinks, you know, hey, my story's kind of turning around here. This isn't so bad. Sure, he misses home, but hey, I'm making a new life here. Just when that happens, that's when his master's wife starts to notice him in an unhealthy way. And she starts making advances on Joseph. And Joseph, of course, is no dummy. I mean, he, he's learned that, that his position could be so much worse and that he's, he's so thankful to have this position of honor in his master's household. And he's not going to mess this thing up. And so he keeps resisting this woman's advances, which makes her come on only stronger. You know how women can be. And eventually, she, uh, she gets angry. You know, her, her, her desire for him turns to anger. And so one day she makes up a story, an untrue story. Her husband gets home and, and she says how this servant Joseph had tried to attack, attack her, which wasn't true. And yet the master heard it, of course, and who's he going to believe? And, and so he takes his wife's side. And, and instead of having Joseph killed on the spot, he does the gracious thing. He locks Joseph in prison for the rest of his life. And that's where we actually come full circle again. Genesis 39, verse 20. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison. Now you know why. Because his master's wife made up a false story about him. Put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Now again, just think about this for a second. This is the kind of thing that would break most people. Am I right? I mean, Joseph's situation went from bad to worse. He was already a slave living far away from home, but, but here he now finds himself in prison. And as a slave in Egypt, he's locked in this royal prison. And do you really think there's due process for slaves in Egypt back then? Not a chance. I mean, Joseph is a young man. He finds himself in prison, a place he could be for the rest of his life. He has no idea if he'll ever get out, and if so, when. I mean, people have gone crazy for so much less, right? I mean, you've been to the License Bureau before. You've seen it. Those numbers just go so slowly. It's impossible, right? But, but here Joseph is, and, and he's locked in prison, a young man. All of this stuff is, is just keeps happening to him. And yet, strangely, again, strangely, this doesn't sour Joseph. This doesn't turn him into someone who is poisoned or bitter or hard-hearted or some guy who shakes his fist at the world or, or turns to dark things. Somehow for Joseph, this weight actually betters him. It transforms him. He becomes not a spoiled kid that he was back at his father's house, but he becomes a pretty extraordinary man. 
In fact, let's, uh, let's look a little further in, in Genesis uh, chapter 39. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. So, so Joseph finds himself going from bad to worse. He was a slave. Now he's a prisoner. And yet, God works things out. And so things that are, again, not so bad for Joseph. I mean, he's in prison. It's not good. But he works his way up and he becomes the master of all the other, other prisoners. It's, it's pretty it's pretty remarkable, but, but, but watch what happens next. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt. Uh, th- these would have been two high officials, by the way. If you're the king of Egypt, if you're the king of any, any nation, any, uh, any uh, place, um, the people who feed you, <laughs> the people who make your food, it's just like at home, right? Treat, treat the person, the cook well, right? Uh, the, the person uh, who feeds you, the person who, um, who bears your cup, who watches over your food. Th- these are people that you, man, they're people of high trust, people of high importance. So sometime later, these two people, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, they offended their master. We don't know how, but they offended their master, the king of Egypt. Uh, Pharaoh, that's the king of Egypt, was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph was confined. Not only that, the captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph. Joseph was put in charge of these guys, and he attended them after they had been in custody. I'm sorry, and he attended them after they'd been in custody for some time. Each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, just so you're not confused. They had a dream that same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. So, so in Egyptian culture, people dreamt a lot of dreams. They had dreams, and they had a lot of uh, belief that dreams held secrets or, or mysteries, or they were prophetic. And so in Egypt, there were people who could interpret dreams. There were wise men, and they had manuals, and you know they, they could help you figure out what your dream meant. And these guys are high officials, and they're used to having a dream that has some significance and going to a, a person who can interpret the dream and finding out what it means and, you know, planning accordingly. But, but these guys are in prison, so it's not going to work out for them that way. Um, so, so they have a dream, both of them, you know. They wake up in the morning, hey, man, I had a crazy dream. Me too. Whoa, this is weird. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there's no one to interpret them because we're stuck in prison. We can't go to our normal dream interpreter guy. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? You know, not to a manual, not to a book, not to some wise men. Don't all interpretations belong to the Lord, the God, uh, the, the God that Joseph knew? Tell me your dreams, he says. Now, now this is interesting, because here Joseph, he's just trying to be a good caretaker of the people entrusted to him. But, but it's interesting, because remember, Joseph was a guy who himself dreamed dreams earlier in life. Dreams that meant something, dreams of power and significance. Except we don't have any record of Joseph ever being able to interpret dreams until right now. 
And let me just save you some time, uh, because what happens is they each tell Joseph their dream, and he hears them, and he gives back an interpretation to each of them. And he says, basically, the dreams mean this. After three days, he turns to the cupbearer. He says, your dream means that after three days here in prison, Pharaoh's going to restore you to your post. You're going to be exonerated. He'll smile on you again. You'll be put back into his house, and your life will be good. The cupbearer's like, yay, right? And then he turns to the baker, and he says, your dream, ah, wish I could help you out here, but your dream says after three days, the Pharaoh is going to still be angry with you, and you're going to be put to death. Sorry. And then he turns back to the cupbearer, and he says, hey, I want you to do something for me. This is going to happen, but here's what I want you to do for me. I want you to remember me when you get out. Please, I'm, I'm rotting away in here for something I didn't do. J- just remember me. And so three days pass, and everything happens just as Joseph said. The, uh, the baker is executed. The cupbearer is freed. Joseph is now filled with hope again. And then the very next words in the Bible say that um, the cupbearer forgot about Joseph. He gets out of prison. He's living the dream again. And he forgets all about this guy, Joseph, for two long years. Which just makes me wonder, at what point, if, if I were Joseph, at what point would I stop trusting God? Do you know what I mean? I mean, how many times can you get knocked down over and over in life? How many times can you get kicked in the teeth? How many times can you just be forgotten, forsaken, before you, you just give up and you just say, I'm done? You say, God, this, this isn't working, this whole faith thing. It, it doesn't seem to pay to be on your side. It doesn't help to be a person of integrity. It, it, it doesn't seem to mean anything that I'm trying to be a good guy here. At what point in your life would you stop trusting God? Maybe some of us have stopped trusting God for far less. I can't say that I blame you. It's, it's difficult to persevere in faith even when things aren't going your way. But, but somehow, Joseph didn't give up. In fact, two years go by and, and he thinks that lead is done, that break in the case is, is done. He's not going to get out through the cupbearer. He's there in jail for two more years. And when everything looks help, just totally hopeless, finally, something happens. The, the king of Egypt, the pharaoh, has a dream. And the king of Egypt, the pharaoh, he's a guy who has all kinds of people to interpret dreams. And so he tells them his dream. And his dream is either so weird that no one can interpret it, or I think more likely, his dream is so clearly bad news that no one wants to interpret it correctly. You know, he's got all these yes men around him, and they're just like, I'm not touching that one. We don't know. And so the Pharaoh becomes more and more upset by this. And that's when this cupbearer, this close official of the, of the Pharaoh, all of a sudden remembers this guy. This guy he knew from his uh, couple days in prison. This guy, Joseph, who could interpret dreams like no one else. And, and he tells the Pharaoh about him. And, and again, to save you some time, the, uh, the Pharaoh calls for Joseph. He's summoned out of prison. They, they give him a haircut. They clean him up. They change his clothes. They bring him before Pharaoh. Pharaoh lays his dream on Joseph. And Joseph says, hey, uh, you know, here, here's the dream. Here's what it means. I'm not going to pull any punches here. Um, for seven years, Egypt is going to have amazing 
prosperity with agriculture. For seven years, you're going to have bumper crop after bumper crop. The, the land is going to be filled with food, so much that you won't know what to do with it. For seven years, it's going to be amazing. But then after seven years, all of that's going to go away. There's going to be a famine in the land that is so awful that it will erase the memory of those seven years of abundance. And then Joseph, he didn't only interpret the dream, but he took it a step further. This is what he said to the Pharaoh. He said, Pharaoh, pardon me, but, but let me just make some advice to you, Pharaoh. Um, I, I would say that someone should take some of that grain in the seven years where there will be so much and set it aside, store it away, keep it, so that in those seven years after those seven years of famine, people don't die because this famine is going to be horrible. And if you don't plan, people will die. And at this point, the Pharaoh is just amazed because he's the pharaoh no one talks to him honestly and no one gives advice in an unsolicited way and he looks over joseph and he says you know what i think i found the guy to do this whole thing and he pulls joseph out of prison and gives him the position of, of authority to run this whole program to 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 do this whole grain thing but not only that he puts joseph in charge of, of really managing the whole country for that time period second only to the pharaoh himself and, and as time goes on, everything happens just like the dream said. Seven years of abundance, and Joseph stores away grain. Seven years of famine, and uh, it's so awful that, that the people um, have to go and receive grain, and, and, but they have just enough. And, and so Joseph not only becomes a high official, he not only saves all of Egypt, but, but he also saves his family because the famine reaches their land as well. They've got to travel down to Egypt. He reconciles with his brothers. It's an incredible ending to the story. You should read it. Look at your growing deeper. It's, it's phenomenal. And it sounds like a Cinderella story, you know, like some magical thing that only happens to, to people in stories. And yet I think it's much more common than that. It's much more practical and down to earth. See, see what, what, what happened in Joseph's life was not just fairy tale forces. What happened in his life is that during that time of waiting, during that season of waiting, God used it in his life for good. God showed Joseph how to get time on his side. R right? Where did a guy like Joseph ever learn the management skills necessary, the administrative skills necessary to run a program of this scale? A program where for seven years you're going to tax people on their grain. And, and they're going to say, why are you taking our grain? And you say, because we've got a plan, you know, trust us. And, and he's going to put it away in big storehouses for seven years and find safe places to keep it. And then redistribute it back to the people over a period of seven long years. Where did Joseph learn how to do that? I mean, being some spoiled kid sitting in the house playing PlayStation at his daddy's house? Like, no. Where did he learn that? Learned that during his time as a slave, right? Being put in charge of Potiphar's whole house. He, he learned it in prison when he was made manager of the whole prison. He learned how to manage things. He learned administration, stuff that he otherwise would never have known. And where did Joseph learn discipline and patience and restraint? I mean, can you imagine when that famine hit and they've got all this grain stored up and people are hungry and they're saying, give us grain now, give us all the grain, we're hungry. And he goes, no, 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 we've got to ration this out for seven years to make sure it's enough. I mean, where did Joseph learn that kind of discipline? He, he was this impulsive kid who would have a dream that, that he'd run and tell his brothers about that would make him mad. I mean, he had no impulse control. Where did he learn that? He learned that in slavery. 
when his master's wife was making moves on him, and he was resisting it. He learned it in prison. Where did Joseph learn humility? In slavery, in prison. Where did Joseph learn to interpret dreams? In prison. As these two officials of Pharaoh asked for his help. You know, I kind of even wonder, we don't know what happens in that two-year time span, but, but I've got a hunch that in those two years, Joseph did more dream interpretation, and he really learned how to, how to hear God's voice to unlock mysteries that he would have no way of, of knowing on his own. I, I believe he refined that skill in those two years so that when Pharaoh called him, he was ready. See, see where did this guy Joseph, this, this, this farmer's kid, the shepherd's kid, who was spoiled, who, who was hated by his brothers, where did he become this great man of, of integrity and power and honor who would eventually save all of Egypt and his whole family from certain death? Did he learn it in an academy? In some fancy boarding school, right? That's where we do for our kids when we want them to learn. The best school money can buy. Did he learn it at home in a nurturing environment with mom and dad in a loving home? No. He learned it in the pain, uh, the agony, the, the distress of a waiting room. He learned it in slavery. He learned it in prison. In some Egyptian dungeon. But waiting on God is so painful. It's taking too long. God, why is this happening to me? How long, oh Lord? Don't you care? Are we there yet? Right? That's what we say when we're waiting. The only thing on our minds when we're waiting is when is this over? And yet instead of asking all of those questions, instead of having that perspective, how about, how about instead... We do what Joseph did. How, how about we try to find a way to make the wait work for us? How about we try to figure out how to get time on our side? See, see, I've noticed something about people who do this well and people who don't do this well. And I think it all depends on one thing. And that thing was locked away in our text way back in Genesis 39, uh, verse 20 and 21. I, I think this is the key. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor. Do you see it? See, I think this is the thing that changed Joseph's whole story, that allowed that, that time of waiting, which would make so many of us bitter and hateful and spiteful. I, I think this truth right here is what enabled Joseph to, to get time on his side, which enabled him to be formed, to become a man who was quite extraordinary. But see, it wasn't just that the Lord was with him. It was that Joseph knew it. J Joseph believed that this was true. He, he could see it in his life. And that made all the difference in the world. See, see I'm convinced sitting here today that uh, the key for getting time on your side, for us sitting here in this room, is recognizing that when you're in Christ, you are never alone. Because Jesus promises this, doesn't he? He says, I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. And, and that was after he actually conquered death. The only thing that could really, you know, separate people. The only thing we know that, that has the power to separate people. He had defeated death. So I, I think he's trustworthy in saying this. That, that if death isn't going to get in the way of him being with us, then what can? 
And then after he said those words of promise, 50 days after his resurrection, he sent his Holy Spirit, who's called the Spirit of Christ. Why? So that even when he ascended back into heaven, we would not be alone. So that his Spirit could be with us here, dwelling with us. And and it's more than just his presence, see? It's about his kindness. It's about what his presence brings. It's it's his faithfulness and his hope and his his healing and, and forgiveness, his mercy. See, that's what makes the wait entirely different. And and here's why that matters. Because if you let him, if you let him, God will turn a wait, which just seems so pointless and a, a waste of time, he will turn that into something that works for your growth. He will leverage it for your formation. God cares more about your formation than your protection. He cares more about your formation than your comfort. He cares more about your formation than your temporary happiness because your formation matters long term. And if you let him, God can leverage time spent waiting for your formation. But in order for that to happen, in order for for, for this whole thing to work out the right way, you have to first know that he's with you. Right? Because here's what happens. We're waiting for a while and we think, God has abandoned me. He's forgotten me. He doesn't love me. He doesn't care about me. He's not good. And we get bitter. And when we get bitter, our heart gets hard. And, and, And when our heart gets hard, we've lost the ability to be shaped or formed. It it doesn't matter what God tries to do. He's dealing with a a rock rather than a soft lump of clay. But when you know God is with you, when you know that despite your circumstances, that God is there, when you you believe it, when you know it, when you look for acts of of, of his kindness and mercy, then God can take a heart that will remain soft and a spirit that is teachable, and he can begin to do amazing work of formation. He won't waste any of your weight if you let him. So this morning, where are you waiting in life? I mean, we're all waiting for something, right? Where are you waiting? For some of you, it's, it's small stuff, but you're still waiting, and it's, it's uncomfortable. And for some of you, it's, it's big. You're waiting for healing or you're waiting for reconciliation with someone uh, that, you are, uh, that you are estranged with currently. And you're waiting for provision. You're waiting for a verdict. You're waiting, you know, some of you are waiting for huge things. What are you waiting for this morning in your life? And then I'll ask you two questions. Do you know that God is with you? Do you know it? Regardless of your circumstances, do you know that because you are in Christ, he is with you? And if if you're not in Christ, I would love to talk to you about how you can be in Christ. This is not just for some people. This is for everyone. And just send me an email and we'll we'll have a cup of coffee. I'll buy and, and, and I'd love to explain to you what it means to be in Christ and how this changes everything for you. So where are you waiting? And, and do you know that God is with you? Regardless of your circumstances, regardless of how you feel, do you know that he promises to be present and so he is? That you are not forgotten, you are not forsaken? And then the second question I'd ask is, can you allow yourself to see it? To see his presence? 
to see his faithfulness. It's there if you look for it, to see his blessing. See, see if you can do those two things, if, if you can trust and believe that God is there, if you can allow yourself to see it, I'll tell you what will happen. This whole thing will, will shift for you. Time spent in a waiting room, which, which makes you crazy, which makes you bitter, which makes your heart hard, it, it turns that into something that is annoying, that is a burden, and it can turn it into something that God can use to form you for your benefit, for a future that is beyond your imagination. God can do that if you trust him. And it's for trust that I want to pray for for all of us today. Father in heaven, I pray that you'd help us trust you. Uh, Give us faith. A faith that transcends whatever we see in life right now that goes beyond our circumstances. Father, give us the ability to to believe that you're present because you are. If we are in Christ, you will never leave us or forsake us. So, God, give us the faith that, that holds to that promise, regardless of whatever we're experiencing. And, and God, give us eyes to see your kindness. It's there if, if, if we've got the eyes to see, and that's why we need you to give us new eyes that can see not just suffering or, or a long wait or the ticking of a clock, but that allows us to see your goodness. God, help us to wait. That's our prayer throughout this Advent season, that you would help us to learn to wait, but not just to wait, to learn to wait on you, to wait for you. Because you can do amazing things with a wait. Help us believe it. Help us trust you. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.